Welcome once again to Art Fictions, the podcast created by me, Gillian Knipe, which explores the art of stories and stories of art. Today we welcome writer and filmmaker Juliet Jakes. Our conversation is actually from a live audience discussion last year. I was invited to participate in an exhibition curated by Cecilia Scheuholm and titled The Comrades They Were Brave, We Salute You. It's centred around defiance in homage to playwright and martial artist suffragette Edith Garrod. Oh yes, you heard that right. She practised jiu-jitsu in Victorian frockage, set up her own self-defence practice and was a member of the suffragette bodyguard unit. The exhibition featured work by Cecilia herself, Deborah Shudnoff, Hattie Buchanan, Ian Hales, Laura Morton Griffiths and Garth Gatrix. And you need to know this because it's the setting for this episode. Juliet has written several books, the latest of which is Monaco, published this year by Toothgrinder Press. It's a composition of emails exploring love, loss and loneliness in the Principality of Monaco. It's an unexpected place of interest for Juliet, who, roughly in her own words, wanted to interrogate why I, as a lifelong socialist, had wanted to visit Monaco in the wake of the 2019 general election catastrophe and the COVID-19 pandemic. The first of which I was still not over and the second of which was still not over and why I had come away liking the place. In describing the process of writing the book and after many years of purposeful avoidance, Juliet speaks of using photography to engage more with her environment to work out what interests her most and finding herself drawn to architectural and historical landmarks, monuments and memorials, public art, posters and graffiti. These interests became the springboard for stories which draw on, for instance, the sculptor Francois Bozio, poet and performer Leo Fede, Bugs Bunny and visiting the grave of Princess Grace. What struck me most in my discussions with Juliet was the notion of hope. And that's a tough challenge in the face of not only fairly much anything political, environmental and around conflict at the moment, but specifically about the hostility voiced by certain, let's say, comedic meets dangerous figures in the UK Parliament today towards gender identity, fluidity and change. So sadly somewhat predictable and completely shameful. However, in today's discussion, we also talk about humour, poverty, alternative Miss World, punk rock gender play, friendship in the face of prejudice, making objects that cannot be sold and the importance of questioning how people pay the rent. And it's all centred around her book, Variations, which portrays stories of transsexual women, transsexual men, non-binary, genderqueer, cross-dressers and inverts around London, Manchester, Liverpool, Blackpool, Brighton, Belfast, Cardiff and Norwich. So everything, everywhere, all at once. Now you've just said to me, it's not Jacques, by the way, it's Juliet Jack. Jakes. Jakes. <laughs> I knew I'd forget straight away. I said, I'm going to have to refile this in my head. It's a bit of a challenge for Like me. Hattie Jakes, you know. I don't know who Hattie Jakes is. Well, she was in the Carry On films. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, if you've not watched them, then yeah. 
you don't really understand this country, I don't think. <laughs> no, okay, <laughs> fair, fair enough. But I will, um, we will get on to that sort of thing with <laughs> pop culture and my incomprehension, of course. Um, but first up... You're better off. It's such a gorgeous day, so it's amazing that people are actually inside for this. So thanks very much, everybody, for coming. And, uh, of course, thank you very much, Juliet Jakes, for agreeing to be here. Thanks. Um, Juliet has an amazing CV to date, so it was very easy to research you. In fact, it was more difficult to decide what to hone in on, but you have studied history, uh, uh, literature and film, creative and critical writing. You've written a book called Trans. I know, by the way, you know all this, but um, just for the sake of the recording. You've also written a blog. Uh, a transgender journey uh, for the Guardian newspaper, which was chronicling your gender reassignment, which I understand was in 2010? 10 to 12. Yeah, okay. Uh, and Juliet's also written a book called Variations, and we are going to talk about a story from the book. It was written in 2021, and there's a particular story called Standards of Care that we're going to pull apart. Yeah. And uh, you've created, written and acted in several films. You teach at the Royal College. You host a radio program called Sweet 212 on Residence FM. And and then me, I'm just an artist. <laughs> <laughs> That's my CV uh, in comparison. Uh, but I also do art writing and I host a podcast as well. So, uh, yeah, it is a very short CV compared to yours. But well, the trick I, to this is yeah. to do lots of things, but not very much of any of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm a writer and a filmmaker and I make radio shows, but yeah, I've made like probably about like less than an hour's worth of film, but I've made three films. So, mm. yeah, filmmaker. But they are films of substance. Um, but you've also acted in one as well. Yeah, I was in a film called Female Human Animal where I was basically just playing myself. So um, my role in that film was to just like go to stuff I'd normally go to and just kind of act more or less how I normally would. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know if it counts. Um, <laughs> but, but was it fun? It was a lot of fun to do, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And it was shot on VHS as well. It looked great. And yeah, it was sort of a quite kind of tongue-in-cheek as much as anything, just kind of journey through the London art world at that time, sort of art, literary sort of scene. And where can we see that film now? I don't know, actually. And this is the thing with a lot of films mm. that, you know, don't end up on TV or on DVD. It's quite hard to see them, so I'm not actually sure. Yeah. I think someone has just put the whole thing on YouTube. Like, I didn't tell any of you that. Mm-hmm. But if okay. you look up, like, Josh Opinionese, Female Human Animal, I think you'll probably find it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I'll work out how to do that afterwards. Uh, So let's start by talking about standards of care. And I'm just going to read the introduction because I think the introduction kind of explains how most of the short stories begin. Okay, to begin, a copy of this diary of Sandy Payne, a transsexual woman living in Norwich in the 1970s, was given to the Norwich LGBT and Plus project by her daughter Simone. Her covering letter says that Sandy wrote this diary during her transition, possibly as notes for a memoir. She never wrote one, but gave the diary to me on my 18th birthday, and I thought it might be of interest for your archive. 
With Simone's approval, we have published selected highlights in this pamphlet, provided free to visitors to give a sense of what life is like for transsexual people in the city in the past. The full text is available to researchers on request. And this is an excerpt by the Norwich LGBT Plus Project, February 2020. But is it really? No. Okay. <laughs> But that's the setup for all the stories. All the stories, like that. yeah. So variations is eleven short stories chronicling a sort of positive history of trans and non-binary people in Britain and Northern Ireland from the Victorian period to the present. So the title "Variations" captures the fact that obviously it documents a wide range of trans and non-binary identities and the evolution of those identities. And it was partly a way of dealing with this problem of how do you document people who seem to fall under a contemporary identity who existed before those identity categories were formed and of course with fiction you can kind of get inside people's heads you can ask questions you can draw parallels between some of the ways people behaved in the distant past and in the present without having to label them but nonetheless sort of putting them into the evolution of a, of a culture of an identity um, so that's what this book does so it has characters who are transsexual women and transsexual men it has characters who are non-binary or genderqueer it has characters who are cross-dressers um it has characters who are inverts and it has characters who are kind of none of those things but just display some of what we might call like trans behavior uh in the present and so every story not just has this range of different characters there's there's only one character carried across any of the stories and it's a real person who has like a very, very minor role in the second story and then is the lead character in the third story. Uh, so that's the sexologist Havelock Ellis who was around in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, otherwise, none of the characters are recurring. So the stories are also set in a variety of different places. So probably about half of them are either set in London or partly in London. But there's also stories in Manchester, Liverpool, Blackpool, Brighton, Belfast. Uh, one touches on Cardiff and the one I'm going to read from splits between uh, Norwich and London, uh, but with sort of Norwich as the character's focus, really. And they all use different forms as well, and where possible I've tried to make the form appropriate to the period of trans and non-binary history that I'm documenting, and what the dominant thing happening in terms of like evolving that community was. So the first story is a secret diary written by an early Victorian cross-dresser and obviously it's a secret diary because there's just no way that the character can publish anything relating to cross-dressing. The third story is set in the 1920s. It's an academic paper published in a sexological journal uh, looking at the sort of way sexologists like Havelock Ellis were trying to delineate kind of trans and gay or lesbian or bi identities. The um, fifth story is a chapter from a memoir from the 1950s, which is kind of the point where transsexual people in particular started publishing memoirs, partly to counter kind of exploitative and sensational media coverage of them, and the story deals with a character trying to do exactly that. The final story is a set of blog posts, 2010s. The 90s story is a film script, dealing with the fact that there were lots of... Um, films about trans people in the 90s, but often not written or directed by trans people, or at least not openly trans people. So the forms try to be kind of appropriate to the time. This story is written as a diary, which is sort of written with half an eye on publication, or like making notes for a memoir. But I think it's, you know, the, the diary form is maybe less 
specific to the 1970s than, you know, the blog form is to the late 2000s, early 2010s. But it felt like a good way to get inside the head of this character. Yeah. Fantastic. I've been talking about this book a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't you read something uh, from the story? So, all right. Yeah, let's have... I think this is the third diary entry that Sandy makes. So the first one is dated 12th of December 1977. And she talks about the fact that she's going through the process of transition at the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic and dealing with the uh, the psychiatrist there, particularly uh, Dr. John Randall, who was a real person. Uh, if any of you saw the um, Adam Curtis documentary, Can't Get It Out of My Head, the scenes from the BBC documentary, A Change of Sex, when you hear the very kind of clinical and cold and rather controlling uh, psychiatrist, who you never see, you just hear him in the documentary. And that's, uh, that's Dr. John Randall, who... Um, frankly terrorised several generations of transsexual women in particular uh, in this country. So he's a real character who just comes into the narrative. Otherwise, the characters are invented. And Sandy is kind of interested in pop music. Uh, Her attention is caught by the glam rock movement because of the, you know, kind of gender play within it. Uh, But it's a few years ago now and punk is just kind of happening. You know, she's also aware of things like the Gay Liberation Front and this sort of post-1968 identity-based activist movements that are cropping up. But again, she's not really involved with them. But she's made a friend at the um, Gender Identity Clinic called Eleanor, who she's seen reading The Enemy and is into, you know, Susie and the Banshees, The Fall, Joy Division, all the good stuff. And so they sort of become strike up like an awkward friendship. So I'm going to read a diary entry... Um, where that starts developing. So it's from the 16th of August, 1978. I met up with Eleanor after yesterday's appointment, after I spent an hour in front of the mirror, doing myself up like I was going to the regatta, only to get wolf-whistled as soon as I stepped out the front door. Still, Randall deigned to praise my dress, one of the few nice things in my size that anyone's brought to the charity shop, and apparently the only thing to hit his sweet spot between feminine enough and too indiscreet. And then he recommended me for surgery. I never thought I'd see the day. I still don't know when exactly I will see that day, obviously. I waited for Eleanor outside the clinic. She was late, straight from her job at the garage. Most of the mechanics were indifferent to her being a woman, after she waited months to tell them, putting up with them taking the piss out of her for mincing and having long hair. Once her chest started growing, there was no choice. There was just one bloke who kept giving her grief after the initial awkwardness, but ever since he came up to her and said, Get your tits out! And before she could ask if that was the best he could do, someone yelled, Get out then, Derek, you tit, to roars of laughter. Neither she nor anyone else has taken him too seriously. I wish someone had my back like that at the charity shop. I asked Eleanor if she was still up for the support group. She shrugged and said, Might as well. So we got the tube to Highbury and Islington. On the way, she asked if I had any transsexual friends in Norwich. They barely know the word transsexual up there, I replied laughing. But I didn't tell her about Sharon how we'd met when I left a note on the board at Charing Cross asking if there were any others in Norfolk and how she'd driven up from Attleborough to get dinner in town. I got more hassle when we were together, so did she, as if the sight of us enjoying each other's company doubled everyone else's resentment. I sometimes wonder if I let all the looks and jibes damage our friendship, but really I couldn't bear all those head-banging arguments about how only Maggie could stand up to the unions. I said we had to stand up for the NHS, to Eleanor, as I had to Sharon. 
and recalled how Sharon would go on about how much she wanted to go private. Eleanor raised her eyebrow, perhaps to say, I'd think about that, but I can't afford it. Who among us could? We can't all jet off to Casablanca for the op. I asked her about who she knew. Not many, she shrugged. Other transsexuals always seemed a bit scared of me, which I understood, but didn't dare say. She'd been mates with a transsexual man, briefly, because they liked similar music. But ultimately, he didn't understand why she wanted to be a woman, any more than she understood why he wanted to be a man. We got to Upper Street, and it turned out Eleanor did know a couple of people there. Jackie, quote, the old bid who runs it, in Eleanor's words, gave us a slightly cold reception. Eleanor said it was because she's not into transsexuals, even though it was apparently a TVTS support group. But maybe it was nothing to do with Jackie being a transvestite. She just wasn't comfortable with all these young punks showing up with their slash tights and pink hair, effing and jeffing like the Sex Pistols on the Bill Grundy show. Eleanor introduced me to Andrea, who'd apparently entered some mad beauty contest last year, her eyes done up like Susie Sue, fake tits and a Union Jack dress with platform boots, safety pins through her ears like something out of Jubilee, which, Eleanor said, was a film they'd seen recently with lots of punk people in it. Here, Andrea was more restrained, but still in her fishnets, short skirt and pink big boots, which I could see Jackie didn't like, although she was far too polite to say anything, just being a bit more cautious and offering Andrea tea and biscuits, although Andrea still watched her P's and Q's. It was funny to see these kids, who the papers are endlessly calling deviants, devil worshippers or red terrorists, listening to their dowdy elders talk about how they were forced to quit their jobs and couldn't face the courts, like me, or how the clinic told them to get divorced so they weren't married to a woman. Rachel took that decision for me, I said. Or got given testosterone or sent for electroshock therapy, as if that would magically turn them into happy, functioning men. Eleanor talked a bit about how her girlfriend, Anna, called herself a feminist, but completely lost it when she came out as transsexual, saying it didn't make sense that Anna basically hated men, but hated even more that Eleanor wanted to be a woman. Eleanor said she didn't try to save the relationship, and that there were quite a few feminists who think like that, but it was the first I've heard of it. People were confused but sympathetic, especially when Eleanor talked about how she hadn't been with anyone else since, and when I said the same for me. They understood better when Andrea said she split up with her boyfriend because he wanted a man, and a couple of other people talked about how they'd had trouble at the clinic because they said they still like women. We shared our memories of our first Charing Cross appointments, all stupid puzzles and those tests where they show you an inkblot and ask you what you see, but it got a bit depressing, and when I started talking about clothes and makeup, Eleanor and Andrea got up and I left with them. Shall I stop there, or there's a bit more about music? You can keep going if you like. Okay, we'll have the rest of the entry as well. Yeah. Eleanor and Andrea were so brash as they strode back to the tube, taking no shits off anyone. It was hard to keep up in my court shoes. They stuck their fingers up at anyone who looked twice at them, but when some tosser screamed, you dress like my mum, at me, Andrea just laughed. Eleanor waited for me to catch up, and when I went quiet, told me I either had to shout back at them or take it on the chin. I sighed. She told me that if I let every comment like that bother me, then I'd fall apart. I was feeling a bit better, and then Andrea said, You do dress like my mum, though. Eleanor smiled, and then changed the subject sharpish, telling me we were going to a secret gig at the Roxy, someone called Wayne County with a backing band called the Electric Chairs, who'd been in Jubilee, and who, she promised, would make the New York Dolls look like Genesis. Quite the promise, I thought, but I wanted to see if the band would live up to it. I got a bit bored of Johnny Come Lately's advertised in the NME, with try-hard names like Dickie and the Glue Sniffers or the V2 Bombers, with swastikas on their jackets to wind up their parents. And not because they were Nazis, of course not. 
What would make this different? A fair bit, it turned out. Wayne came on, holding the mic far too close to his mouth, snarling, If you don't want to fuck me, then baby, 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 fuck off. So far, so typical, but I hadn't seen anyone who looked like Wayne before. This huge bouffant blonde wig, permed, down past his or her shoulders, short dress and stilettos. He kept taking the mic stand, hitching up his skirt and sticking up his crutch, pointing at the crowd and screaming at them. I was just stood there laughing as the thirty or so people in the crowd started whistling, screaming and pogoing, as Eleanor called it, sweating buckets. I thought I'd get eyeballs for not looking punk enough, but nobody cared. It was so dark I could hardly see anyone except Wayne anyway, for one of the songs put on a hat and pulled out a toy gun to take the piss out of the police, crashing into the guitarist as he leapt around the tiny stage. I wasn't crazy about the electric chair's racket, a bit rockabilly, a bit punk, and to say they made the dolls look like Genesis was overselling it, but I could have watched Wayne all night. But I only got about 20 minutes before I had to rush back to Liverpool Street covered in beer. Eleanor said I could have stayed at hers, but her squat mates had a band from Manchester crashing on their sofa. The next day, she phoned to say I'd missed a new song called Man Enough to Be a Woman, which was amazing, all about County's transsexual feeling and dropping the mask of masculinity. And fair enough, it did sound pretty great. Still, I'd seen just about enough to make it, and the piss-head lad shouting at me on the last train back to Norwich, worthwhile. The next day, I went into Arprice, HMV and Castle Road Records. None of them had ever heard of Wayne County and sniggered at me when I tried to explain. That's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> no, I really did enjoy that. And it really covers, um, it did cover some of the uh, quotes that I had pulled out, but it covered so much of what the whole story, and in fact your approach to writing is very much like, where there is an ordinariness to uh you know everyday life that for somebody like me who doesn't fit into I think any of those categories that you mentioned at the very beginning about the focus of the book and the focus of your writing and your concerns and yet I was saying to you before this all began uh I find it's just so easy to sort of slip into the book and relate to uh, the setting and the context. And it's the context, the familiarity of those contexts that helps, I think, bridge gaps, I suppose, Mm. between my existence and my assumptions about identity and uh, perhaps yours and some of the characters that are in your books. And one of those devices, of course, is through popular culture. Now, I know New York Dolls and Susie and the Banshees, but a lot of the, because I didn't grow up in this country, a lot of the references to the TV shows I didn't mm. really uh, pick up on. But um, between the humour that is very present and the pop culture that's very present, is this a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing that comes naturally to you or are you specifically setting about, I don't know, it's that beautiful keeping it light to be able to uh, broach something very heavy approach. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things to, to say there. Um, I mean, humour is just always essential. You know, I spend a lot of time trying to be funny with, like, varying levels of success. And, you know, for queer people, humour's always been a really important device because we don't tend to get through school by being, like, good at sports or good at fighting, so we have to be kind of funny. Those are, like, the three ways to get through secondary school if you're, like, a son male at birth. So, so yeah, you know, humour, I think, is, is, like, a big part of the community. And, like, 
a lot of this stuff is quite funny. You know, I mean, the sixth story is like about drag queens in Liverpool. And the whole thing is sort of a laugh, but they're also exploring things that are quite serious and quite serious social issues come out of the scenarios that they're in. And that's true for a lot of the stories in the book. Um, I don't think there's any stories in here that have no humour at all. It's always there. Uh, And as far as pop culture goes, I mean, there are two things that I think are kind of essential when you're like building a character, whether it was myself in the memoir or any of the characters here. And there's two things that, you know, you need to think about and you balance them in how you create characters and their narratives, but that apply to everyone, no matter what their sort of gender identity or sexuality or nationality or race or whatever is, is like, what do they do for work? Like how do they pay the rent? And what do they do in their spare time? Um, and I try and bring both of these things into the stories to some extent. I mean, probably in variations, they're more balanced towards the latter than, than work. Um, but, you know, I do get kind of sick of, like, reading things or watching things, just thinking, like, how do you people pay the rent? Or don't you? But, but yeah, so so that's, that's a way to make the characters, like, relatable. But, I mean, you know, I personally have really defined myself a lot through pop culture, and the, the memoir is really about this process. You know, I grew up with Section 28, which was the Thatcherite law that prevented the, quote-unquote, promotion of homosexuality in schools and public libraries and places like that. Um, so if I wanted any discussion of LGBT issues as a teenager, um, you know, I had to kind of root it out through music or through television or film or or whatever. Um, so that did kind of push me more towards defining myself through culture. And yeah, maybe like a 20 year old trans non-binary person now something like, I don't know, conversations on social media might be a lot more foundational for them. They might constitute themselves slightly differently. But I think pop culture would still play a pretty important role. Um, yeah. yeah, and and pop culture, of course, feeds into how one might present themselves or dress. And the issue of dressing hmm. uh, is such a big thing. And uh, Randall, who's basically something of an asshole. Yeah, at one point he says Sandy is well <clears throat> Sandy is well adjusted and intelligent. We discuss the patient's dress and comportment, which are not yet satisfactory for someone living as a female. And so horribly authoritarian about how some some idea about how mm-hmm. Sandy ought to dress. And it almost reads as if when she complied to dress properly that he gave permission for her to go ahead and have the surgery, which was, you know, written in quite a humorous way. But of course, the weight of the weight of the weight uh, that she had to go through was horrible to be able to fit into whatever sort of small, narrow-minded category he obviously had for her. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, firstly, it's a fairly accurate reflection of how the process was at the time, and even was when I went through it, sort of like just over a decade ago, um, you know, I would get copies of the letters that the gender identity clinic sent to my local GP in Brighton. And it would just say, like, thank you for referring this, like, very pleasant lady to the practice site. This is weird. Um, And it was a lot more kind of authoritarian in the 70s, and a lot of trans theory came out of critiquing the processes that were sort of 
designed to program people to disappear and to kind of pass in their chosen gender and you know never tell anyone and we're often encouraged to like move away from all their friends and family and start a new life somewhere else and you know do all these other things that were clearly designed at protecting like you know people from transness rather than helping the trans person really live a not happy and mm. functioning life so so that's very kind of real but there was you know a kind of thing like transsexual people have always been expert patients um you know we do kind of set up and find support groups and we share information and so basically everyone knew what someone like randall and of course again you know there's only a tiny number of psychiatrists it's probably like you know less than 10 people that are likely to encounter and you know people would all say oh i had this psychiatrist what are they like well do this this and this and don't do this that and that um so people would share the info and there was just this sort of thing where like you know on the sort of handful of appointments at the gender clinic the clinicians would ask you to dress a certain way. So you could just turn up in, like, Sandy says, dress for the regatta. And then, you know, the other kind of, like, 362 days a year, just kind of dress and present how you want. Which indeed is what she's kind of doing in the piece. And, you know, like, later in the story, you get the contrast in her going to, like, this alternative Miss World where people are playing with all sorts of, like, you know, kind of ways of creatively playing with clothing and gender and... Um, in fact, uh, it, it's actually at the alternative Miss World where um, she says the judges graded people on poise, personality and originality, kind of the opposite of the Charing Cross, really, which I thought was great. <laughs> I guess I grade you on poise, but yeah, slightly different way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing that you've just mentioned there that obviously is in the story of the meeting of Alana is the issue of friendship Mm. and I thought that really really came across and at one point Alana kind of dumps Sandy at the alternative Miss World and so they have this altercation of sorts and then Alana reaches out and and they make up and it's really beautiful because when Sandy gets the letter that Alana's written including photographs of them together at alternative Miss World it's beautifully told about how she's opening the nervously opening the letter and she says oh I gulped as I read the letter despite her awful handwriting (laughs) which I thought was really sweet but Eleanor says at one point you know it wasn't good enough I wasn't there for you so I get the sense that friendship and that sort of camaraderie which is very much the uh the theme of the exhibition that we have here today with regards to the suffragettes that sort of camaraderie and support is critical yeah absolutely and it was really important to write about I mean I I kind of feel that in just culture you know narrative literature or film in general there's maybe not enough focus on friendship and like you know overemphasis on romantic love and you know that culturally is slightly out of balance um so I've always been really interested in exploring friendship and particularly friendship in the face of prejudice I mean we just talked about the friendship with Eleanor but just as crucial to standards of care's depiction of trans friendships is just the little bit Sandy writes about Sharon uh saying you know when we walked down the street together we got a lot more hassle and I mean that was certainly true when I was transitioning as well if I went out with like one or more other trans women people noticed me a lot more than if I was on my own or with like a cisgender person and so I think that was probably even more true in the 70s uh but also you know the thing of like she falls out with Sharon over politics 
And that was like the case for me. I mean, I worked for the NHS in Brighton in the late 2000s. And there was one other transsexual woman there who, when I started the process, was really helpful. Um, but just kept a picture of Margaret Thatcher on her desk. And I was like, look, our whole existence depends on, like, a social liberal society and a functioning state health system. Like, what are you doing? And so, you know, that was that was a real uh, point of contention. But, mm. you know, we both sort of tried to provide some support to each other and we liked some of the same music and things. So, you know, we did try and edge around that. But, yeah, I mean, depicting the kind of love and kindness between Eleanor and Sandy is really important because it is sort of shaped by the fact that they do, because, you know, there aren't many transsexual people around, they do kind of need each other. And the dynamic, of course, is that Eleanor is the, like, cool one who is, like, completely unafraid of expressing herself. And Sandy is the one who's sort of trying to keep, like, one foot in normal society, quote-unquote, and one foot in this sort of, like, emerging queer kind of counterculture. And so there's this dynamic where, you know, Eleanor sort of sometimes feels motherly towards Sandy, even though Sandy is older. And sometimes, yeah, it kind of takes the piss out of her. And, you know, when Eleanor and Andrea are together uh, and, you know, Eleanor sort of sides more with Andrea because she wants to be in with Andrea. And, you know, these are like dynamics of the playground, really. But I think they do, you know, persist when it's adult. And it's good to explore them, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it extends into... Uh maternal paternal because it keeps swapping uh relationship as well because sandy has a daughter Mm. simone and there are some really really touching moments where simone asks why why don't you want to be a man Mm. and sandy is all for uh explaining this you know in a quiet way to simone but perhaps not at the woolies pick and mix (laughs) (laughs) Um, and she does talk to her later and Simone ends up doing a drawing of Sandy and she hadn't written mummy or daddy on it but there was a bigger person in a dress holding a little girl's hand and she starts crying because she's just so moved and thinks it's absolutely beautiful. So even though there's that sort of banter and friendship, there's also these really exquisitely moving moments that you've drawn with the characters I thought. I did have one complaint about the story, though, which was that it ended. (laughs) And I felt, oh, I'm just getting into this person's life. And Mm. and now, oh, then it's stopped. But I then thought, actually, no, the story does go on Mm. in other stories that are in the book, but also in your film, because I was looking at a particular film that I wanted to talk about today, which is... and. I'm going to struggle with saying this, so I'm going to say it really quickly. Uh, revivification. Yeah. How's that? I can't remember why I called it that. I was really struggling <laughs> for a title. Um, Art, activism yeah. and politics in Ukraine, mm. uh, which you uh, created in 2018. And uh, what came across to me, I mean, lots of things came across to me in, in that film, but what came across to me very quickly is that you know, like in this conversation, uh, you are very astute and assertive with your ideas and your opinions, actually, but you are very generous with the space that you give other people, uh, like the characters in your book, and also like the artists who who appear in your film. Stories are from the artists and their work and their experience in the Ukraine before, I shouldn't say the Ukraine, and their experience in Ukraine before and after 2014. 
and 2014 was the Revolution of Dignity, or also called Euromaidan, which overthrew the Ukrainian government at the time, who favoured ties with Russia and they're very anti-EU. Uh, this resulted in the annexing of Crimea, and which, you know, we're in current history, to use a funny phrase, and also the really the uprising that we've experienced, obviously, in this country to some degree of far-right nationalist groups. And so there's this uh, bickering, at best, that goes on between the pro-EU mm-hmm. and, and the increasingly popular far-right, which is really, really um, devastating, obviously. There's a, whole lot, there's a whole range of artists through this film. So, for instance, there's a musician who is talking about lyrics uh, around a billboard which feature a woman and the line fresh meat. And there's an artist who talks about her practice around poverty and labour and her refusal to create objects that could be for sale and participation in capitalism. And so, for instance, one of the things she's doing, which I think is so beautiful, is learning sign language so that she can create performances where she only communicates in sign language so that people will understand what it's like to be excluded from certain conversations. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was this idea of propaganda. Mm. So, for instance, you were talking about Section 28 and Thatcher, which I'm not particularly familiar with, but... There's a protest in the film where people have these banners and one of them translates to say propaganda of homosexuality is as dangerous as propaganda of communism and fascism. And there's a particular artist, she creates a work called Body and Borders where she it's, she calls it a performance, but she actually marries her partner in Switzerland. In Sweden, uh, I think. Sweden, yeah. And as a result of that her sculptures are destroyed back in... Well, she can't return to Crimea by um, this point. Yeah, the sculptures, I think, were actually in Donetsk at the old Isoliatsia site, but we'll come on to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wondered about this idea of what propaganda means because in this exhibition, we've certainly talked about the importance of friendship mm. that, that has been facilitated very much by the curator, Cecilia, but also about context and so propaganda can mean different things in different um, situations Mm. do you want to talk about your sense that you got from these people that you met yeah okay so just a little bit more about the film and how it came about I think so I think it's good to have um, a bit more backdrop on it Um, so I have had a, a desk space at Somerset House Studios since 2016 And in 2017, they had someone over from a similar space in Kiev called Izoliatsia. And the name basically refers to, uh, it's not isolation, it's um, insulation. They previously had a space in uh, in Donetsk, in Donbass, which they set up in 2010 as this cultural art platform. And they were forced to leave in 2014 when the um, Russian-backed separatists uh, declared the Donetsk People's Republic and turned the old Isliatsia site into a, a concentration camp, basically. And there's been a video for years on the Isliatsia site of one of the soldiers talking about one of the books that he's found at Isliatsia and how decadent it is. And it's a collection of um, photographs by the Soviet-era photographer uh, Boris Mikhailov. 
So it's interesting that he sort of ascribes this sort of decadence to like Ukrainian independence, and it's, it's you know it's nothing of the sort. So Isliatsia moved to Kiev, and you know I met someone from Isliatsia at Somerset House and just said, well, actually, you know, I've always been really interested in Ukrainian history and politics and culture. I'd love to come and do a residency with you. So then we had to work out a project. And I'd been spending time in various post-communist countries. I'd been to Kyrgyzstan, I'd been to Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia. And I kept meeting the same kinds of people, which were these sort of like queer artist activists, usually quite feminist, very pro-LGBT, critical of the Soviet or, to a lesser extent, Yugoslav period uh, wanting to kind of reimagine 21st century socialism that was kind of queer inclusive or some more liberal form of socialism. Uh, but they were like broadly on the left politically. Um, and that came into their work. And so I sort of imagined that I would meet a similar community in Ukraine. And the idea behind the film was that, you know, you would explore that community as I did. But there's very little voiceover in the film. It literally is about a minute of me talking, I think, in the half hour film. Because I get sick of well, presenters, really. You know, you don't need that much of them. And, you know, I'd also seen like a Vice documentary that had chronicled the sort of LGBT community in Ukraine and the artistic community to an extent. And first, he was just very presenter-led. And secondly, he spent about half the film just saying to like fascists, why do you hate LGBT people? And giving all this voice to them. It's like, well, we kind of know why. Like, it's because they're fascists. Like, we don't need to hear from them. And so in the film, you know, I don't talk to any of them. I just talk to academics and artists, both of whom are kind of also activists. So, yeah, so this idea of, like, propaganda really interested me. And, that you know, it seemed to be they were all trying to create a different society. And some of them had been present at the Maidan uprising in 2013-14, which was a really awkward mix of sort of, like, left liberals and fascists, basically, all wanting to get Yanukovych out, who was the previous uh, president. And and they succeeded in that. But then, you know, the response was the Russian occupation of Crimea and backing of these supposedly autonomous groups in, in Donbass. Uh, so dividing the country, um, anyone from sort of Crimea or Donetsk in particular is the main city in Donbass, you know, pretty much got exiled if they weren't in sympathy with the, um, the, the rationalisation or occupation. Uh, and obviously recently, you know, that has turned into a much larger and wide-ranging and, like, devastating mm. conflict for reasons that I'm still not really that sure of. Because, you know, in terms of kind of engaging Ukraine in a war in the hope of keeping it out of NATO and less likely to join the EU, that's already been going on for, like, eight years. So the sort of most behind the current occupation are a bit more opaque and the possibilities for creative responses to them, I think, are a lot harder because, you know, every major urban centre in Ukraine at the moment is either fending off a ground invasion or is being bombed or both. Absolutely. Have you been in touch with any of the artists from that film? Uh, the artists... Uh, none of the people are actually in the film. I've been in touch with people who helped me make it. So I've been mm-hmm. in touch with Oksana Kasmina, who shot the footage and edited it with me. And she was in the States when the war started, so she's probably still there. Uh, my friend Lena, who worked at Isoliatia at the time and really kind of coordinated the residency, so she was the person there I kind of got to know best, spent the most time with, went to her parents' house in a town called Rivna, which is west of Ukraine, uh, west of Kiev, uh, but quite near the Belarusian border, so I'm not sure that's an amazing place to be either. And then my friend Alexei, who's a, a filmmaker, he's just outside of Kiev, and he's really in demand at the moment. I think he's 
doing a seminar today actually somewhere in London but he's been doing a lot of like benefits for Ukrainian filmmakers and artists I'm hoping to do an event with him at the ICA so Zoom. you say he he's doing something via Zoom so he's yeah. stayed there he's near Kiev he's not in Kiev right I'm not quite sure where he is actually mm. I mean it's a really strange film to watch literally right now mm when people are really struggling for their, you know, sort of safe spaces, mm. um, and then we have the situation that we have now. In fact, one of the artists does create a work called Come In, Come Out, uh, about pri- private spaces, public spaces, and she creates a uh, safe space for herself and for the people that she has filmed. Uh, and then she walks around the group mm. naked, And I had such mixed feelings about that because Mm -hmm. she's walking around this crowd naked and talking about going on to, you know, one of those dating apps and meeting up with a woman, etc. And she's talking about this date. But she also has men filming her on their Mm -hmm. cameras as she's walking around. So it's... There's something really horrible about it. I mean, it ties in with feminine as well, doesn't it? It was sort of Ukrainian feminist group. And I think while I was still in Ukraine, like one of them died actually, like the age of 31 or something. And that was sort of quite traumatic for a lot of the people I'd met. Um, but, you know, Femin were very into kind of using their bodies in this sort of quite confrontational way. And I guess, you know, just dealing with the male gaze or not dealing with it, perhaps. I'm not really kind of sure. I don't think they really kind of resolved that contradiction. Or maybe they just felt that's a contradiction that people in the West were sort of imposing on them. Agatha Pizik, who's like a Polish writer, wrote quite interestingly about this, so that's maybe worth a look. Right, yeah, I thought that was really strange and, and, and fascinating, actually. Uh, the other thing that sort of relates as well back to something that comes across very much in the book about dressing, literally clothing, is an artist who created a piece called The Clothes of Our Dreams, this sort of mm. utopic idea of, uh, what was it, re-sew or something? Uh, yeah. yeah, so they're like a sewing collective. Yeah, yeah. collective, yeah. Yeah, so it was the idea of creating the outfit of your dreams, mm. if I could present myself to the world exactly how uh, I feel I want to present myself. And the artist who made that talked about rather than being an abstract idea, it creates us as present people in a sort of slightly fuck you, you've got to deal with me now kind of way. And uh, it relates very much to Sandy in the story's hyper-awareness mm. of every sort of piece of clothing. And there's another story about the night at the theatre mm. where uh, the character is... Not just talking about dressing, but talking about uh, using, I think it's balls of wool for Mm. fake breasts and how knowing, oh, God, they're going to be so itchy all night, which I just thought was so lovely. Based on a true story. Ah, okay. And then just even getting ready for today, Mm. I was thinking about the normal way that I would think, oh, what mood am I in? What am I going to wear? And also the fact that there's another layer of Mm. being worried about what you're going to wear. Not just in terms of how you might think about what other people might think, but also in terms of deterring even violence, Mm, uh, which is something that has to be confronted through some of the stories in the book Mm. and some of the characters uh, in the film. It's a big theme in the memoir as well. I see, yeah. Uh, 
But one thing that, and you don't talk very much at all in the film, which I really enjoyed, in terms of letting people speak for themselves. And just to sort of wind up uh, our part of it, and then we'll do questions, what you do say is what's necessary and what's possible beyond simply being visible. Mm. And that completely threw me because I thought it was all going to be about visibility. And so can you say a little bit more about that, about not just being visible, but what are the possibilities beyond yeah, visibility? Yeah, I, mean, I guess that was just sort of me thinking about partly my own work and the way I'd moved beyond doing this like Guardian series, just saying, this is me, this is who I am, and this is the process that it entails, through to kind of building on that and being like, well, you know, art is a great way of taking this idea of visibility, but firstly, just, you know, doing something formally interesting with that visibility. Mm. Uh, and secondly, you know, building on that visibility to try and create, like, new worlds out of it. You know, just the idea that visibility should not and is not an end in itself. And also it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, I mean, Jane County, formerly Wayne County, obviously write about in the story, um, you know, in her autobiography, Man Enough to Be a Woman, she talks about sort of dressing in order to, like, freak people out. But then later in the book talks about how, like, visibility can be a real problem because people know what to beat up if they understand more about a thing that they hate. You know, greater understanding doesn't always necessarily bring greater tolerance. You know, you've got to kind of just do a bit more than just be like, here I am, now mm. it's fine, because often it isn't. Uh, and indeed, that was the case for the artists I was working with in Ukraine. I mean, in the um, film, you see us go to Kiev Pride... And we basically had to march in a cage from uh, down Krishatik, which is the main street in Kiev. And there were like hundreds of either religious conservatives or just straight up fascists banging on the cage and trying to get in and, you know, huge numbers of police keeping them out, often quite grudgingly, I think. And when we got to the end, the police let us out of this just big, you know, mile long metal cage that we were more or less marching in and said, don't go down to the metro because you will get beaten up. So we just, you know, kind of ambled out and had a coffee and things like that. Um, so visibility was like very much this mixed thing. And yeah, I mean, I think all the artists in the film are doing something much more interesting than being visible. I mean, the artist who is working with it, uh, I think most directly, and you pointed out, is uh, Tatiana Kornieva, who does this coming out performance and, you know, confronts the audience with her naked body. And there's something there sort of saying, look, you know, this is what a lesbian woman looks like. And she was by far and away the youngest artist I worked with. She was in her early to mid-twenties and most of the rest were about 10 years older and much closer to my age. But yeah, you know, you pointed out the Riso Collective and what they were doing with, with clothing and, you know, the idea of like self-expression as one way of moving beyond just visibility. Valentina Petrova's work where she kind of feeds people and works with sign language and, you know, creates a community. And, you know, this question of like, well, who are we visible to? What if we're visible to each other? What if we're supposedly visible to each other, but in a way invisible, as with uh, the sign language project, kind of highlighting people who still get excluded even within community spaces. Antigona's work, which I think is really great, these amazing, incredibly sexually charged underground videos that have this sort of music video aesthetic. And so kind of draw on things that, you know, have a kind of queer heritage, but not necessarily a kind of explicitly quote-unquote LGBT one. Uh, and kind of make those R's in a, in a really interesting way. Um, but also, yeah, you also see, like, again, music comes up. You see um, mm. a Natalie Belov and his group, Lutsky Padova, 
doing this song about fresh meat, which is taken from this advertising slogan of like a naked woman or near naked woman that they see in Kiev. Uh, and then at the end, like Alexander Zalupin's bizarre guy kind of wearing like a suit and a big green mask, mm. just singing a song about like visibility and self-expression. Mm. And yeah, um, they all have very different approaches to it. But yeah, altogether, it builds up this really interesting like, art scene. The art is full of possibility and as I suggest in the film, that actually kind of suggests a different world rather than just, you know, the world as it is, but slightly more. I mean, a, a Bosnian friend of mine who's very interested in, like, radical queer and kind of anti-assimilationist stuff, and I work with him quite a bit. Uh, you know, the phrase he uses is rainbow capitalism. And this felt like a really interesting alternative to that. So that's interesting, the uh, anti-assimilation idea, because I was thinking when you were talking, and certainly what I got out of the film was that with regards to, say, movements like Black Lives Matter, is that, you know, visibility, I think, is one thing, Mm. but it's some sort of almost patronising idea of what would it be, like acceptance or something Mm. like that. And uh, I would like there to be more ambition, and that's what you're talking about, beyond that, where you see changes in infrastructure Mm. and changes in presence, but also, you know, more of a contribution and a contribution of of change. You know, let's put it this way. I don't want everything to stay the same, but Mm. we're just going to be nice to to these people that we've been horrible to before or something like that. I mean, that's way too boring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the sort of joke I really remember, like a trans friend on a podcast making when Biden got in and immediately committed to trans rights and representation but didn't you know commit to any sort of change in the healthcare service that would actually make it easier for trans people to access the healthcare they need let alone any other you know kind of wide-sweeping social changes that would deal with you know the huge levels of poverty and inequality mm. and Alice was just like yeah that's the future it's the trans flag being painted on f-35s um and you know that's depressing but she's probably right as far as that liberal LGBT politics goes. I mean, also, I should say, though, I mean, I do want to complicate this a bit because, you know, when I went to Kiev Pride, I hadn't been to a Pride in Britain for years. And it was because, for me, it become too kind of mainstreamed. And, you know, in Brighton, where I lived for a long time, they started charging people, like, £15 or something to go to the park for Pride. Mm-hmm. And this is partly because it had become so popular and, you know, Brighton has a population of 330,000, I think. 250,000 people would come to the town just for pride. So, you know, um, it kind of wasn't manageable for them, but the only way they could think of to deal with it was to, like, make people pay to go, um, which, you know, always seemed rather against the spirit of the thing. And, you know, a lot of the discussions I've been having in Britain about pride were about, you know, whether or not, you know, traditionally big or small C conservative groups or institutions, particularly the police, should be allowed to march in the parade because, you know... It's ours, it's not yours. And that's an important discussion to be having, I think. Mm. And, you know, I broadly agree with the people who, you know, don't like it. Uh, And I remember being at Brighton Pride one year, being behind the gay Tory flow. And it just said, like, I've come out, I'm a conservative. I was like, go back in. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, in Ukraine, you know, they'd love to have problems like that. You know, if their biggest problem was like, we don't want the police to wave the rainbow flag. I think they'd probably take that. Yeah. Given that, you know, a couple of years previously, the police had just, like, leaked the location of their secret Pride March to fascists who turned up and, like, had started killing people. 
Um, so it's really important to keep that in mind, I think, when sort of thinking about this film in particular. Yeah, I feel like I've maybe deviated slightly from your question, but... Was still really interesting, so that's completely okay. fine. Uh, but it might be a nice time now to open up uh, to the audience if anybody has any questions. I haven't read Variations yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. And I just um, wanted to hear a little bit more about how you came to each subject, mm. because I was interested to know whether you only wanted to work with subjects that there was enough of their own words or if there was an arc in terms of thinking around different histories and places and times and how how those came together yeah very much the latter i mean as i said like all of the characters in this book apart from havelock ellis in the third story they're all fictional um they're based often on real life people and as the book goes on Less so, actually, because, you know, earlier in the history, there's a smaller number of known kind of gender-variant people. And then, you know, as you get closer to the present, there's more and more. Um, So Sandy Payne really kind of, in terms of care, represents the point at which, like, transsexual women in particular go from being this sort of occasional media sensation to a sort of identifiable category of people. And, of course, the story is looking at partly how that category is formed by the general identity clinics and their requirements. Um, so, really, the book, you know, choosing the subject was very much looking at this overarching history of how the community is formed. And I took that history, like Susan Stryker published a, a book called Transgender History in 2008. And she talks about how the development of industrial cities, and particularly London, you know, let kind of people move from the countryside to the city have a bit more anonymity. So then you get these practices like women dressing as men, men dressing as women and kind of doing so publicly. You also get the evolution of the Metropolitan Police as something that, you know, this is one of the things they're kind of, you know, keeping an eye on, nominally speaking. Um, And then, you know, you get all these arrests and trials of individual cross-dressers. So then you get the evolution of, like, the law to deal with it because the authorities don't like the look of it. You get sexology to counter that. So that gives you the sort of evolution of transsexual and transvestite identities. And then you get, you know, media coverage, the institution, the um, sort of development of the healthcare infrastructure and, you know, the development of like trans writing, history, politics, culture, you know, amidst all of these things. So that's the discourse that the book is um, is charting. So, yeah, each story kind of, you know gives us a snapshot of the development of that community. So, yeah, like, the first story in Night at the Theatre is these two cross-dressers, like, one of them just really wants to go to the theatre on Drury Lane, dressed as a woman. Um, But, you know, they're very much inspired by a clipping they find in the Times about someone else who's done this and, like, gotten off with a fine. Um, So you always get the sense, I think, even when the stories are very sharply focused on individuals, that they're kind of part of, like, a wider historical context. Um, you know, the fifth story has, like, a transsexual woman who falls in love with a transsexual man, and they're both trying to avoid being like, outed by the papers. And, you know, even as the story is very narrowly focused on the two of them, and the woman in particular who's telling it, you know, there are other, like, named individuals by that point that she can and does refer to. I just want to make one more point. Uh, when you said, oh, I don't know if I've gone off your question or mm. whatever, I thought you absolutely answered my question because I was thinking about uh, 
you know, the the way that Pride in Brighton became something you didn't really want to attend anymore and the way that the Pride in Ukraine uh, since 2014 had gone from 1,000 participants to mm. 6,000 participants. Uh, there's a way of keeping things sort of necessarily complicated that I'm very interested in personally with proper equal representation by different groups and uh just to come back to the book for a moment, there's a right at, right at the end of the book, it says, I laid on the bed and wept, partly because it still hurt. And I think that the pain of your operations and all the procedures was something that I hadn't, hadn't even considered before. So mm. that in itself was very interesting. Uh, but mainly because everyone had been so kind. And I always find kindness and hope so much more moving I, I suppose I took off my clothes looked at my naked body and asked myself if all this had been worth it, worth it and realised yes it had and that I couldn't wait to get back into real life again and mm. your real life also involves football and you've got a date at the football this afternoon yeah I've got a <laughs> ticket for England v Switzerland with the LGBT group so um, okay and mm-hmm. that's another part of real life that uh, you need to get back to maybe. and dress appropriately for oh okay <laughs> I see what does that mean uh, probably means I'll just change into a pair of jeans and a t-shirt okay brilliant thank you so much thank Juliet you. for today thanks everybody for thanks. coming Gillian Knipe here again. The audience actually asked a couple of interesting questions, though the sound was only clear for the first one, so I left that in. Speaking of which, a huge thanks to David Goimer for the original recording. Equal thanks to those who've subscribed, rated, and of course, contributed to the production of this program via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. If you haven't already, please do. It's a small ask that makes a big difference. And finally, thanks to you, lovely listeners, and also to today's wonderful guest, Juliet Jakes. Credits for this abridged podcast are Griffin Knight for the music and Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions for our Jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time.